0: title of our conference tonight is How the Society of St. Pius X Serves the Church. And I think to begin, we should say a few words about Archbishop Lefebvre himself, because we can't understand the society, which is the greatest work of the Archbishop, without understanding the Archbishop himself. And although we probably at some time or another have, have read articles or maybe read the biography, for example, by Bishop Tissier, uh, these things tend not to stay in our minds, so it's good to have a little reminder. And I would think, I, I would say that most of us don't realize the extent of the Archbishop's experience and how prominent a place he really held in the events uh, of the Church in the 20th century. It's it's quite striking to to bring these points uh, all together. So we'll just begin with that. So the Archbishop was born in France, obviously, in in 1905. He was drawn to the priesthood. He felt a strong attraction to the priesthood from a very young age, as some priests do, but not all, as a matter of fact. Just point that out, but he did. And he entered the seminary at age 18. Not the local seminary at his, uh, his local diocese there in France, but following his father's advice he went to the French Seminary in Rome, which had a very good reputation for its orthodoxy and especially its anti-liberal teaching. Whereas, whereas the local diocesan seminary had a little bit of a reputation uh, for being a bit soft on the question of liberalism. So following his father's advice and following his older brother's example, he went to the French Seminary in Rome. Much could be said about that, but we'll just move ahead. So six years later, he is ordained a priest. Uh, shortly after that, he completes his doctorate in theology, and he begins his pastoral work in the local diocese in the city of Lille, his, his local diocese. However, as hard for it, as it might be for us to imagine a time like this, there was no shortage of priests in Lille. They had as many as they needed and even perhaps more than they needed. And the archbishop's older brother, who was a missionary in Africa, said, you really need to come here. Here we have a great need. And so uh, after after praying about that and thinking about that, he decided to follow his older brother's example and he joined the Holy Ghost Fathers, uh, a missionary congregation, and he went to Gabon in Africa to begin his career as a missionary. When he goes to Gabon, he is made a professor of the seminary there, which is, of course, the beginning of his providential uh, preparation for his life's work. He is then eventually promoted to rector of that seminary in Gabon. Then, some years later, he is called back to France to be made the rector of a seminary in France, in Mortain, right after the, the Second World War, a very, very... Challenging time, obviously, to be doing anything in that part of the world, but especially forming priests. In 1947, Pope Pius XII appoints him bishop of Dakar in Senegal. So back he goes to Africa, but now as a bishop. I should just point out, because it's an interesting little point, some of you I'm sure already know, but this is happening immediately after the Second World War. It's just interesting to point out, because it's not always known, that the Archbishop's father, his dad, was a member of the French underground, and he was eventually arrested, sent to a concentration camp, and died in a concentration camp. So it's an interesting detail to mention when people accuse the society of being anti-Semitic and pro-Nazi and all this sort of thing. Well, uh, the father of our founder, died in a Nazi concentration camp. Just a little detail that can be good to mention. In any case, he goes to Dakar as bishop in 1947, and the next year, 1948, he is promoted to archbishop and made apostolic delegate of all of French-speaking Africa. So he was now responsible for traveling. He was responsible for, for multiple dioceses in multiple countries, And this, of course, was an enormous work establishing new mission centers and colleges and seminaries and hospitals and orphanages, dealing with all these different religious orders that were working at this time in Africa. It was an enormous work to be responsible for all of these French-speaking dioceses. Pope John XXIII, sometime later, appoints him, because of his experience, because of his learning, to the Preparatory Committee for the Second Vatican Council to prepare the documents that will be the initial uh, drafts of the Council documents to guide the Council's uh, deliberations. Uh, Archbishop Lefebvre is appointed to that Preparatory Commission which will draw up the agenda for the upcoming Council. In 1962 then, which is the year the Council opens, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre is elected superior general of his congregation of the Holy Ghost Fathers. And now he is uh, obviously at the height of his career, so to speak, very, very prominent man. And he goes to the council. And of course, we don't have time to go through the whole history of the council, but as you probably know, the modernists win their first victory right at the beginning by scrapping, by setting aside all of those preparatory documents that were drafted with such care, all of them except one, which was the draft on the liturgy, that was the most uh, modernist, but the others are set aside, and now the council has no agenda. And so those who are the most organized, which happens to be the the modernist contingent, who are the most organized, uh, they are able to seize control of the direction of the council, as you can understand. Nevertheless, the conservative bishops, they do fight back against the the direction that the modernists want to take the council. They form a a group called the the Cetus, which is a word means a a group, of, of international fathers, the Cetus Internationalis Patrum, to fight back against the modernists. And the archbishop is the chairman of this group of conservative bishops, the group, in fact, does win some victories. If you read the, the history of the council, uh, the various books that are available, you see they do win some victories, and some documents are not as bad as they would have otherwise been. Nevertheless, the conservative fathers are not able to have a decisive influence on the council. Council ends in 1965, after the council, the archbishop unfortunately has to witness the implementation of the council in his own congregation. A modernization, if you will, in the, in the theological sense of his congregation. And he, he fights against that, but he is not able to stop the destruction of his own congregation. And he resigns as superior general in 1968. He is 63 years old. He has lived a lifetime of intense service to the church. He's ready to retire. And yet, we can see from our point of view, from our vantage point, that everything he had done, all those years of labor, all that experience, was simply a preparation for the most important work of his life, which happens at the end of his life. So, now a little word about the founding of the society. I think it's a bit encouraging. I I always like to speak about the founding by first pointing out what the lay people did, and particularly what some lay men did. It's a good reminder for the men of our parishes to realize that they have something to do, and sometimes that can be very important. Holy Thursday. The story of the Society begins on Holy Thursday in 1968, providentially the day, of course, that the, the Mass and the the Holy Priesthood were instituted. Holy Thursday, 1968, it begins in a cafe in Switzerland where a layman, Alphonse Padroni, is having a coffee. And he overhears someone at a neighboring table bragging about the the business deal that he's about to to pull over. He's going to purchase an old property, uh, one of these sort of religious places, and uh, he's going to knock down the buildings, and he's going to build a restaurant and a nightclub. Well, of course, Alphonse Padroni knows what property—the only property he could possibly be referring to—which is the property at Ecom, which has belonged to the Canons of Saint Bernard. You know about the Saint Bernard dogs, of course. So the Canons of Saint Bernard since 1302, and now it's going to become a restaurant and a nightclub. So, he's horrified. He wants to, as he says, save the vocation. He said this place, this property has a religious vocation and he wants to save it. So he gets some of his friends together and they decide they're gonna pool their resources, they're gonna buy the land. They do not know what they're going to do with it, but they're not gonna see it become a restaurant and a nightclub. And so on the 31st of May, they close the deal. Feast of the Queenship of Our Lady, 31st of May, 1968. Elsewhere in May, 1968, there are protests at European universities, these communist protests that broke out during the month of May in 1968. The communist flag is hung out over the French seminary in Rome, where the archbishop had studied. One of the small group seminarians hang out the communist flag and the conservative, a little group of conservative seminarians at the French seminary, they see, with, they see this with horror. And they realize they cannot stay at the French seminary. And they go looking for someone who can help them. And who better than this man, Archbishop Lefebvre. So he go, they go and they find Archbishop Lefebvre. And he comes up with a makeshift solution. This bishop who wants to retire, the seminarians come, he finds a makeshift solution. They will go study at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland, which is, thus far, a bit more conservative, and the archbishop will find a property, a little house, where at least they can live together, they can support each other, they can have set times for prayer, you know, and they don't have to live at the university in a more worldly environment, where they don't have to live separately. They can live together in the same house, support each other, and go take their classes at the university. And so these nine seminarians undertake this makeshift solution, Bishop Tissier being one of those nine. So it's interesting to see how God works. These seminarians were in Rome. That's where they were. But they go looking for the archbishop, and the first solution he finds is in Switzerland. And so the the field of action, the scene, if you will, shifts from Rome to Switzerland, which is obviously very providential, as we will see presently. So the seminarians are going along. It's a makeshift solution, and they understand pretty quickly that it's not really going to work long term, because... As conservative as this university is, it is slowly going the way of all the others, and so they need another solution. And it's at this moment, when the Archbishop is looking for another solution, that those five Swiss laymen find out that he's looking for a solution, and they approach him, and they offer to him econ. And so in September of 1970, which is when the academic year begins in the Northern Hemisphere, September 1970, Econ begins its first academic year. Which is good. Now the seminarians live and attend classes in the same place. This is excellent. But it's not enough. The seminarians quickly realize that although this is working, it's not a long-term solution. Because what's going to happen after they are ordained? They will go back to their diocese, They will either not be accepted by their bishops at all, or they will be accepted and not permitted to minister, to to live their priesthood, and to have an apostolate the way they were formed to do it. They've been formed in the mind of the church, and they're not going to be allowed to live as priests, according to the mind of the church. And so, one of the seminarians goes to the archbishop and says, it is inevitable, your grace that you will found a congregation. There's no other solution to this problem, and you have begun, and you have to finish. The archbishop is 65 at this time. So the archbishop sees the force of the argument that it's not going to work any other way. Still, he doesn't want to act on his own initiative. I want it to be a work of God. I want it to be a work of the church. And so he goes to see the local bishop, Bishop Charriere. And sets the project before him. I have this idea for a congregation of priests. Here's the the statutes I've written up for your consideration. What do you think? The bishop says, yes, do it. And so on the 1st of November, 1970, Society of St. Pius X is born. Four months later, which is quite quickly actually, Sacred Congregation for the Clergy in Rome gives its official letter of encouragement, and the society is founded with the full approval of the church. This shows us, I think, that the Archbishop is not a man obsessed with his own ideas. He's not one of these men who says, I know, I know, I know, everyone get out of my way. This is what I'm going to do. He's a man of principles, and he's a man of providence. And it was only little by little that providence led him to the next step, the next step, and the next step. And I would say to his surprise almost, he he finds himself the founder of a congregation. So that's the little background I wanted to share with you at the beginning. Now the title of the conference, How the Society Serves the Church, we want to understand this. And the first way to understand that is to realize that the society is founded for the priesthood, according to the mind and spirit of the church. The society is founded for the priesthood according to the mind and spirit of the church. Because the archbishop realized there was nothing better he could do to help the church than to help its priests. There's an old French expression. Uh, I know a lot of old French expressions, even though I don't know a lot of French um, because in my seminary I had a French rector who was always telling me these, these, old, these old French expressions. So you'll have to ask Father Crismon how to say it in French. But this old French expression is there are no bad times, because we say, well, we live in bad times, all how bad the world is. The expression is there are no bad times, there are only bad priests. And the idea is that if the priests are good, the church will be healthy. And if the church is healthy, the church will be a light to the world and will lead the world. That's the idea. So the holiness of the priest is what really determines the direction that the world goes, which is something, by the way, the archbishop absolutely noticed in Africa. When holy priests went into a pagan place, they transformed the whole, the whole region, socially, economically, culturally, politically, everything changed for the better, according to Christian principles. So what the archbishop wanted to do was to provide a way for priests to have a good priestly formation and then have what they needed to live that formation. And so he invents this idea of the priory, which will give the priest the ability to to exercise his apostolate according to the mind of the church and have the support of the priest and the community life which is so much according to the mind of the Church. A little detail which is also maybe not so well known, the Archbishop chooses St. Pius X as the patron of his congregation not because of the Pope's Pope St. Pius X's fight against modernism. Obviously there was that, and we obviously admire him very much for that, but that was not the reason he was chosen by the Archbishop as the patron. He was chosen because of the emphasis that St. Pius X always placed on priestly formation as a bishop in different dioceses and then again as Pope. That's why he was chosen and that's why the Archbishop wanted his intercession for this work. The statutes of the society say that it was founded for the priesthood and only for what pertains to the priesthood. The Archbishop really did intend to found a congregation and not a movement. Becomes that. But that's not really what the archbishop firstly had in mind. But we see the same sort of process of providence continuing. So the archbishop first tries something that just seems enough, just enough to be sufficient to solve the immediate problem these seminarians have. But it's pretty soon seen that it's not enough They do something more. And then that's not enough do something more. And so... So too, in the life of the society itself, it's, it's been that. So we have these priests, which means we have quasi-parishes where people can come and benefit from the ministry of the priests. That's only natural. But over time, if we have these, these parish, uh, these parishes and this parish work, well, it's a parish that lives the life of tradition. Well, what about these apostolates that were traditionally in the church? Those should be revived in that case. And so we have the Eucharistic Crusade revived and the Arch-Confraternity of St. Stephen revived and other such apostolates, if not revived, at least established according to the the model of similar apostolates and parishes before Vatican II. All right, Uh, if we have parishes and I have these children, I'm trying to educate them in the faith where do they go to school? If I send them to the local diocesan school, they're going to get a different spirit, a completely different spirit than what they're trying to get at home and, and at the church. So we need schools too. Okay, so we have schools. All right, fair enough. And you know, school's over and it's summertime and what am I going to do with my children? You know, they're going to be playing with their friends in the neighborhood and and they're going to lose that momentum that they got through the the school year, well all right, summer camps. We need we need summer camps. All right, fine. Right. And then the parents, they need they need to have their their souls spiritually recharged so they can they can continue to be faithful parents and all right? So I guess we need retreats. Maybe retreat houses. All right? So my family is doing well. My children are growing up. They have the faith. They want to serve God. What about religious vocations. What do we do? Where do we send them? Alright. Fair enough. So we have the Sisters of the Society. Those are founded. And then over time, religious who are a bit exiled from their own congregations because they won't go along with the modernism, either singly or in groups, they drift towards the society and again, just as with the eucharistic crusade and arch confraternity of saint stephen traditional forms of those congregations are then established and so we have the teaching sisters as we have here or you have contemplatives like the carmelites you have missionary congregations missionary sisters um, contemplative men like the benedictines of course and what ends up developing is is like a family of traditional congregations And that's all by providence. The society has had to do more and to be more than the archbishop would have foreseen at the very beginning. But as the crisis continues and it gets worse, and it just continues over years, well, what can we do? These needs are there and they have to be fulfilled. It is important to realize that the society Although it has providentially had to develop and expand into all these other areas, it does have its own proper work, the formation of priests and the sanctification of priests. So if the crisis of the church ended tomorrow, it, it won't, okay, don't, don't think I'm saying that, it won't, but if it did, the society would not say, okay, well, that's over, we're all done now. No, we would we would just start focusing on what... Perhaps we we had the focus that we were meant to focus on in the beginning, perhaps, I don't know. But I just want to mention that the society was not founded to solve the crisis. Society was founded to make a contribution to the church, the most significant kind of contribution that could be made to a church because of the importance of good priests, but it has its own work, crisis or no crisis. Now, the society, as I say, providentially, without setting out in advance with this great plan exactly what we were going to do and what we were going to be, we do end up, practically speaking, providing for the faithful pretty much everything a diocese would provide its faithful. Parishes, schools, camps, retreat houses, apostolates, religious congregations, confirmations, ordinations. It's the way it went. It's the way it went. And so now, we come to our first answer to this question. How does the society serve the church? The first way, the first way, perhaps the most obvious way, is by serving the church by providing at least a certain number of Catholics with access to the Catholic life. And you, of course, are very aware of that. So the first way we serve the church is that with at least a certain number of Catholics. This is not something that we are doing over on one side, and the church is over there. It is Catholics we are serving, and Catholics we are sanctifying. So we are serving the church by the work we do in all of our apostolates. Whether it be the parish, or the schools, or the retreats, forming priests. Right. These are members of the church who are being served. I don't think we need to elaborate any more on that. I think we understand that way. The second way that the society serves the church needs a bit more explanation. And I would say the second way the society serves the church is by being a lighthouse for those Catholics, lay people, religious, and clergy who are not directly served by it. But nevertheless, a lighthouse, sort of a lighthouse and a bank vault, if you will. A shining bank vault, where we have the treasures of the church, but, but we want those treasures to shine out and be seen by, by the others. Okay, So this does take a little bit of explaining, and this is going to be the, the bulk of our, of our talk tonight. So the superior generals of the society are always saying that these, these treasures that we have preserved, and we're not necessarily the only ones preserving them, but we're doing a bit more than most um, for preserving all of them, in any case. Um, we're not preserving this Catholic life just for ourselves. We're, we're preserving it because we want everyone to have it. And we, want, we think everyone should have it. So we want to show the, the people who are, who are stumbling around in, in the confusion and, and the error and the sterility, the sterility that is so common in the church, we, we want to show them the way out of that situation. And I would say that is a little bit a difference between the Society of St. Pius X and other congregations like the Fraternity of St. Peter and, and, and things like that, We do not offer tradition as one option that might interest some people. We are not trying to corner a sort of niche market that might interest a certain segment of people. We are convinced that every Catholic should be living a traditional Catholic life because a traditional Catholic life is just the Catholic life and everyone should be living it. Objectively speaking, all Catholics are obligated to live that life. So, of course, we understand there's a lot of confusion. Many of us, many of us, have come to tradition ourselves over many years, so we know that grace takes time, and we, we, we come to understand it little by little, the crisis in the church, and 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 I would say for many people it's a terrible... It's a blow to them. I was just speaking to a family in Australia very recently. They said, we were so angry when we realized what we had been cheated of. So, there are souls of goodwill out there, but of course, as we know from perhaps our own experience, it takes time. And we're not trying to condemn everyone who's still sort of on the way and and trying to respond to grace, but... Objectively, at least, objectively, at least, uh, the new mass is not an option for Catholics. Objectively speaking, right? so this this is our second way to to be a bit of a treasury, but a, a lighthouse. And I would say this is my own reflection. Okay, my own reflection, but this essential mission that the society has by its nature, which is about the priesthood, forming priests and then helping priests to stay formed, if you will, that helps the society fulfill this role of a lighthouse because it gives the society a focus on what is the mind of the church. Okay, Because the greatest thing you want to give a seminarian is a sense of the mind of the church. Of course, they have a lot of things they have to learn, of course. But above all that, the mind of the church, which is really just the mind of Christ, you want to put that mind in the seminarian. You want him to have the right convictions, the right way of thinking, the right way of approaching problems. And of course, a conviction that holiness is what is most important and that progress in holiness is what life is all about. All of these things, the mind of the church, that's what you're trying to put into the seminarian. And because that is our first work, it really does um, help us in this providential mission to be a lighthouse because that is what the world needs. That is what Catholics need, the mind of the church. right? Archbishop Lefebvre as a, as, a, as a detail he said it's possible to believe like a Catholic and think like a Protestant right I believe everything but the way I approach my life is much more Protestant actually and that's that's not yeah you know, I would say in anglo-saxon countries it's especially a tendency because we live in a Protestant culture we do okay well, even you might say we it's not even Protestant anymore it's it's post Christian, but in as much as it's uh, Christian at all, it's it's a Protestant Christianity that we, we live and breathe when we step outside of our own properties. So it is very easy to believe like a Catholic and think like a Protestant. There are lots of examples that I could give, just a couple of simple ones. I don't know if you know what a, a Denzinger is. A Denzinger is a, is a book which is simply a compilation which some very scholarly man with a lot of time uh, put together. It's a, a compilation of the most important, or what it seemed to this man, the most important um, quotes from councils, quotes from encyclicals, and whatever. And it's put in a book, and it's it's got a very nice index. So if you want to, to know, okay, a teaching of the church on the Holy Eucharist, you go to the index, and it, it gives you all the different uh, paragraphs of all the different councils and cyclicals that are the most important on the Eucharist. It's very, very useful as a reference book and a study tool. But, you certainly encounter souls who go and order their Denzinger online and bring it home and they live their Catholic faith sola Denzinger. So not sola scriptura, sola Denzinger. But they do exactly the same thing, right? They want to know something. They pull it off. They look it up, and they interpret it as they want. And father says, "Yeah, but yeah, but theology teaches. Don't talk to me about theology. I, I read it right there. I, the letter says that." And like, yeah, but but do you know the the origin of that expression? And you see, there was this debate between. No, no, it says that, and I know what that means, just like a Protestant does. Call no man father. It says right there. So, what do you call your father? Dad. So, Sola Denzinger, okay? That's one example. You have people who have, I'm sure you've met people like this, maybe some of you are like this. Lucky for you to be here then, to hear this. People with very independent spiritualities, right? I have decided that I have this spirituality and I'm going to sanctify myself in this way and this person, who's usually extremely enthusiastic about this and tells everyone, eventually gets to the priest, and the priest is like, but, but that's not how it works. But there's no convincing them of that. Okay. So it, it is a, a Protestant way of looking at it. I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to go to God my own way. And I'll, I'll use Catholic materials, but it's still my own system, and not the church's system. Another example, last one. As I say, most of us have come to tradition, either ourselves or our parents, from, from the Nova Sordo. And that's a very painful, sometimes very painful process. And what's painful is that we, we have to stop trusting certain people that we used to trust. Because we realize what they're saying is it's not what the church teaches, actually. That's not what the church does. And so they arrive in our chapels, in our, in our parishes with their trust badly shaken, and that's normal. I mean, that's normal. But at the same time, the way the church works is you need to be guided. Priests are there to guide you. And so some people understand that, and what they're really looking for is, is a priest who's trustworthy, who can guide them, because they know that's how it's supposed to work. But some people find it very, very hard to ever allow a priest to guide them after that psychological trauma of having to leave their local parish. But the way God has set it up is the way God has set it up. And and you are going to need a priest to guide you. You are. So the mind of the church is really what we need because if it's hard in the current chaos to even know one's faith, as we know it is, I was speaking to uh, someone just yesterday, I think, and we were talking about How with each generation, every generation is a blank slate. It's a blank piece of paper. They don't know anything. You can come from the best family in the world, Catholic family, and if you don't teach your children, they aren't going to know. Because they come into the world knowing nothing. Everything has to be passed on with every generation. And that hasn't really happened the way it's supposed to. So it's hard enough to know your faith. But to know the mind of the church and to live that mind of the church is much harder. To think like a Catholic is much harder than believing like a Catholic, as hard as that is in these days. But because the society, its its mission is really firstly to put that mind into its priests, the other apostolates that we end up providentially having to do benefit from that focus on giving the mind of the church. And I'll give you a few examples. Okay? Although you've perhaps never noticed, the priests of the society, when they teach the faith, they teach the common teaching of the church. Okay, So there are some points in, in theology which are debated, okay? and the church hasn't you know, settled them definitively. So one theologian may say this, and another theologian may say that. But there is a common teaching on those points. The teaching which is, Taught by most theologians, taught by most popes, as it were. Okay, and the society is very careful to give that teaching to its seminarians, and then it's when those seminarians become priests, they give you that teaching. Okay, so it's something that you may not have noticed. You might have thought, well, it's. I just thought that's the only thing you could believe. Well, there is that one Spanish theologian over there who has another idea, but. This is the common teaching of the church. And that's a big help. It's the common teaching for a reason. Because it gives the best solution to the most number of questions. So what you receive puts you in the mainstream, not of today, but the mainstream of Catholic thought before Vatican II. That's what you get. Mind of the church. A love for the liturgy and a sense that the liturgy is the primary instrument of the apostolate. Okay. We hope that we give you that. We try to give you that. Um, we try to give you, although it's hard, because there's a lot of other things we have to give you, a sense of the liturgy's doctrinal richness. If the faithful before Vatican II had had that conviction, if that appreciation of the of the mass and the liturgy for all of its doctrinal richness... I think the new Mass would never have gotten off the ground. More people would have said, no, not doing that. Right? So we try to give you that. A fascination with its beauty, yes. Its beauty is important. Its beauty does form the soul. Mother Janet Stewart, in a quote that I like to tell everyone, uh, Mother Janet Stewart, a mother general of the Sacred Heart Sisters, and a wonderful lady. Um, She died the same year as St. Pius X. She said that beauty forms the souls of children the way suffering forms the souls of adults. Which I think is an interesting point. Any case, so it is beautiful. I want to give you that sense of it, but of its doctrinal depth, right? Mind of the church. Knowing and using solid spiritual principles to continuously improve. We really do try to teach you that there's a system to this. There's, there's laws that govern the progress of grace in a soul. It's not willy-nilly. It's not a lottery that people become holy. No, grace is a real thing. And it grows in certain ways. And there's obstacles that need to be overcome and snares that need to be avoided and things that need to be done to feed that life of the grace. And we give you that. And we give you, I hope, one of the reasons I come to visit is to make sure it's being done. We give you, I hope, an expectation that you're meant to get better. Our life is to grow. Right? Life is growing. right? So that's the mind of the church. Sanctity is what matters, and we have to keep moving forward or we go backwards. And then finally, last example, of the mind of the church, which will bring us to our last, our last topic here the society's positions on the crisis in the church okay the society's positions on the crisis in the church those positions are really nothing more than a careful balancing and application of the church's common teachings the church's common teaching on the errors which are around us today that's what we use to develop our positions on the crisis in the church. Our positions are not a political platform. Okay, I am troubled when I will sometimes speak to a faithful and they will will be discussing the differences between the various conservative or traditionally minded groups and they will refer to it as politics. And they will even think they've said something profound when they describe it as politics. Now, I don't disagree that there is a human element in the way things unfold. There always is. We are human beings. But it's not politics. There are different groups because they believe different things, at least about the crisis in the church. Okay? They stand for something different. So the society's positions are our positions, if you want. They're institutional Inasmuch as they differentiate us from other Catholics, that's true, but that, it just happens to be that way. Essentially, our positions, we would, we would say, and I think we're right, are simply the application of the Church's common teaching. It's not institutional. It's just a careful, balanced application of the Church's common teachings. And everyone should be able to reach those same conclusions. And I'm going to end. We're not ending just yet, but I want to talk about these positions, okay? And to understand those positions, right, we have to understand, and, I, and this is important because we are only a lighthouse to the church because we understand and we try to live the church's common teaching on these issues. Right. We 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 respond to the crisis properly, and that's why we can be a lighthouse for the church. And for that matter, it's also why we can serve our faithful. It's because we respond to the crisis properly. So, to understand the positions of the church, the positions of the society, and how we're different from the other groups, there's basically three topics that we need to talk about because those positions turn around these three topics. Okay. Those three topics are Vatican II, the New Mass, and the Constitution of the Church. Now, all three of these topics could be a series of conferences, so I'll try to go through them very very briefly. Vatican II. Vatican II, 1962 to 1965. Okay. I'm always telling the children the dates. i try to remember the dates. 1962 to 1965. It's the French Revolution within the Church that's really what it is. Okay? So, St. Pius X as we know condemns modernism in 1907 and the modernists go underground. Right? St. Pius X dies in 1914. Within a decade of St. Pius X dying, the modernists are already trying to see if they can't use a council to gain control of the church. They're underground? They're a minority. But a council could be just the tool to give them an influence disproportionate to their actual numbers. They're already thinking about that within a decade of St. Pius X's death. And we know this because Pius XI, in 1923, was thinking about calling a council. And so he secretly asked the opinion of various cardinals, what do you think about the opportunity Is it opportune, is it a right time for us to call a council? And one of the cardinals he consulted was Cardinal Biot, a great French uh, cardinal, very anti-liberal cardinal. And Cardinal Biot told him, no, it's a really bad idea. And this is what the cardinal said. One cannot shut one's eyes to the profound differences among the bishops. A council is desired by the worst enemies of the church, namely the modernists, who, according to the most reliable evidence, are already preparing to take advantage of the Estates General of the Church. So using a metaphor of the, the French Estates General which, which, uh, which launched the French Revolution. The Estates General of the Church to launch a revolution, a new 1789. Okay. So they're already working for this. A quick detail, by everyone's admission, anyone who's ever studied Vatican II, they know that the most important people in there were the theologians, right? The people like Rahner and Congar and De Lubac and all that sort of thing. By everyone's admission, they were the most influential people. And if you look at those three men, they are all very honest. And they say that they, they rely for their ideas, their influence. They owe their, their, their whole ideas and what they are working for in the church. They owe it to the men St. Pius X condemned. So there's a direct link between the modernists, St. Pius X condemned mm-hmm and the next generation of neo-modernists, and they're very open about that. Okay? So the Kants and the Heideggers and the Tarals and the Blondells of the world, those are the people that they say, yes, those are the ones who influenced us. Which is why many, Röner, Congar, De Lubat, as an example, many of these influential theologians had already been condemned before Vatican II. And then they're rehabilitated, and they, they influence so For those people, the friends of yours who will say, well, I don't know. How do you know Vatican II? Because the influential people, number one, were all condemned personally before the council and they are very open about their allegiance to other men who were condemned by Pius X. Okay. Three errors of Vatican II. If you go to a society parish, this is standard information. You need to know this. Okay. Three errors of Vatican II, ecumenism, Religious liberty and collegiality. All right? So humanism, you know what that means. This idea that any religion will do. Any religion is more or less true and a way of salvation. Right? So we need to dialogue, we need to learn from each other you know, and not pretend like we have it all straight because the Holy Spirit uses everything, right? including false religions. Right? Humanism, religious liberty. The, the state should be secular. Right? There should not be any Catholic states. There should not be any explicit reference to a religion and a constitution. right? Divorce should be allowed. right? There shouldn't be any religious teaching in public schools. The secular state and collegiality, which is kind of complicated. Father Albert gave a very good talk on this at the Angeles Conference a few years ago, well, several years ago now, time flies. But basically, um, the church is not a monarchy, which is what it is, Okay? The Pope, right? The church is more like a democracy, to put it simply. So three errors of Vatican II. Nevertheless, Vatican II, if you look at the documents of Vatican II, the statements made by Vatican II come in three flavors erroneous, ambiguous, and traditional. Don't oversimplify things. Not every word in Vatican II is false. Don't oversimplify things. That's silly. Okay, If you think about the fact that most of those bishops at Vatican II had been appointed bishops by Pius XII and Pius XI, I'm sorry, the the modernists were not in the majority. They weren't. They were influential, etc. But the idea that the majority of bishops appointed by Pius XII and Pius XI would have gone along with documents that were heresy from start to finish, that's kind of silly. That abstracts from the history too much. And it also forgets the work of the archbishop himself. So the archbishop and these other conservative bishops were working to improve the documents. And they did have some victories. Okay, so don't oversimplify things. The documents are erroneous in some places, ambiguous in a lot of places, and in some places they're quite traditional. The way it goes. Right? But the insistence that Vatican II does contain errors is one thing that distinguishes, again, the society from groups like the Fraternity of St. Peter, etc. Okay, Father John Berg, Superior General of the Fraternity, some time ago, he stated in an interview given to the Remnant, the 5th of July, 2007, you can go look it up, 5th of July, 2007, that it was the mission given to the fraternity at its foundation to show the continuity of religious liberty, ecumenism, and collegiality with the church's tradition. I was shocked he was so open about it, but he was. That's the mission given to the fraternity at its foundation, to show that these are not errors; These are, in fact, consistent with the tradition of the church. So the little word about Vatican II. The New Mass. Okay, obviously, we could talk about this for a very, very long time. But, quickly, the society's position on the New Mass, we, we can't do any better than the classic statement from the Ottaviani intervention. The classic statement, right? So the famous um, study that was done. Again, the Archbishop was involved in that as well. The Cardinals Ottaviani and Bocci, They write a letter to Paul VI, and they say that the Novus Ordo Missae, the new Mass, represents both as a whole and in its details a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass as it was formulated in session 22 of the Council of Trent. The new Mass represents a striking departure as a whole and in its parts from the Catholic theology of the Mass as formulated by the Council of Trent. The problem is this new rite of Mass, right? According to these cardinals and according to the society, this rite of Mass, when we say a rite of Mass, we mean the prayers, the the gestures, the rubrics, okay? Those prayers and gestures and rubrics, they do not come together to form an expression of the theology of the Mass as the Council of Trent taught it. The the rite of mass fails to even express the catholic faith about the mass itself about what the mass is propitiatory sacrifice in which christ is present as a real victim offered you know by only by a priest can offer it etc etc the rite of mass doesn't express what the mass even is much less other things other doctrines of the faith and the mass has to express the faith it, it is. That's that's what liturgy has to do. It's in the nature of of liturgy. And so, since it does not do that, even if the consecration might be valid, it might be, but the rite of mass does not do what the rite of mass is meant to do. It is defective. And so, objectively speaking, position of the society, objectively speaking, no Catholic should take an active part, an active part in the new mass. Okay, you can if you have a, a good reason. You're your, your mother dies and she's Nova Sordo. You go to the Mass and you, you stand and you sit and you kneel. But you don't go to communion. right? You don't do a reading. Right? You don't bring up the gifts. And all that sort of business. This is not the position of Fraternity of St. Peter and the other groups. It is not. Okay? Fraternity of St. Peter does maintain, and these other groups, maintains the Church's liturgical traditions intact because these rites are its charism. As, as they say, this is this is our way to serve the church. But it's not necessarily for everyone. Okay. I just give you a little quote here because I, we could go on and on. But I, this is good for you to know. All right. In the, apostolo- the letter of John Paul II, Ecclesia Dei et Flicta, right, is, the, is the document he wrote after the consecrations in 1988. Okay. It's when he tried to say that the archbishop had done a schismatic act. Okay? Ecclesia de afflicta, right? And he said the reason for this schismatic act, as he said it, was because the society was refusing to accept living tradition, which is quite true. We were not accepting living tradition as the modernists understand it, as John Paul II understands it. Okay. Also, on the 10th anniversary of Ecclesia Dei Adflicta, okay, John Paul II expressed what his intention was in issuing that decree. Okay, he says, quote, while confirming the good based on the liturgical reform wished by the Second Vatican Council and initiated by Pope Paul VI, that's the new Mass, the Church grants also a sign of understanding to those persons attached, question of feelings, attached, to certain previous liturgical and disciplinary norms. That would be the Mass of all time. So Ecclesia Dei Adflicta says society is wrong because it doesn't accept living tradition. And ten years later, John Paul II says the purpose of Ecclesia Dei Adflicta was not at all to second-guess the new Mass, but to, yes, to do something nice, a gesture of understanding, to the people who are kind of attached to what we used to do point of mentioning this is because the constitutions of the fraternity of St. Peter assert that the fraternity is "quote" founded in the spirit of the apostolic letter Ecclesia Dei Adflicta. Unfortunately, Ecclesia Dei Adflicta is not a charter for a principle-based position on the crisis in the church. I'm just pointing out, I'm not criticizing the group because of its personal, whatever. There are many, many good priests in the Fraternity of St. Peter who don't actually believe what the Fraternity of St. Peter stands for, as a matter of fact. And I'm also not criticizing them because they are recognized by the church and they're legal. That's not a problem. The problem is the positions they adopted in order to get that approval, which are contrary to the mind of the church and just contrary to fact. Almost done. Almost done. Last thing: Constitution of the Church. Maybe you never thought of this before, but the Church has a constitution. It's not a written constitution, but but it is true that our Lord founded it in a certain way. It is what it is. Our Lord knew what He wanted it to be. It has certain powers, right? Right. It has um. Well, has a lot of things. Right. It has certain powers, certain ways of uh, a certain structure with the Pope at the top, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But fundamentally, the church is a truly visible society. It is a real society and it is visible under a visible head, the Pope. And it's not visible because you have you know, bodies and you're visible and I can see you. That's not what we mean when we say the church is visible. We mean the church is an organization and as an organization, you can see it. You can, you, you can recognize it. It's it's like a, it's like I mean to take a silly example it's like a, it's like a club a soccer club or whatever okay you yeah you know what it is you know how it's organized you know who its members are it's a, it's a society and the church is like that okay it's a visible organization and traditional theology the common teaching of the church emphasizes this visibility because it's not what the Protestants think. So it's a, it's, a contrary, um, it's a contrary teaching to what the Protestants think. And more specifically, not only the common teaching of the church, but the anti-modernist theologians just before the Second Vatican Council, they emphasized the visibility of the church because they were criticizing ecumenism. You can't say the Church of Christ is somehow in some mysterious way in the Lutherans and the Baptists, even in the Buddhists in some mysterious way that nobody understands. You can't say that. The Church of Christ is the Catholic Church, which is visible, apostolic, and Roman. That's the traditional theology of the Church. And even up until the very minute of the Second Vatican Council, the most anti-modernist theologians stressed that So however scandalized we may be, and we are, by the words and actions of popes and the bishops, the Constitution of the Church, as Christ founded it, demands that the Church have a visible structure and a hierarchy. And if Pope Francis is not the Pope, the same reasons that people argue that, and I'm not criticizing the people, I'm saying I, I think their arguments are not consistent with the common teaching of the Church, but the reasons they argue that could just as well be used against all the diocesan bishops in the world, pretty much, it was not just a question of whether the Pope's the Pope. Those same arguments would disqualify the bishops of the church as well. So there is no hierarchy at all anymore, if the Sede of Contests are right. In which case, the church has failed, or the church has evolved. We no longer have a hierarchy, but that's a modernist idea, that the church has evolved. We're not, we're not into that. So, what differentiates the society from the state of Aconte, who agree with us on a great many things about Vatican II and the New Mass, um, is this question of the constitution of the Church. So, the society doesn't pretend to have all the answers, but the society does insist that we use the common teaching of the Church and the mind of the Church to address these questions. And the society realizes the extremes can touch. You can be so anti-modernist that you end up teaching a theory of the church, which in fact is what a modernist would have would have agreed with. A quick word in conclusion. This is really it. I thank you for your patience. Quick word in conclusion. There's really only three possible positions on the crisis in the church. You have the Ecclesia Dei, the fraternity position, which is things are not as bad as the society and, for that matter, the saty-de-contest, say. The problem is certain abuses. It's not Vatican II in itself. The Pope can be obeyed in everything without violating any kind of a principle. That's one position. The crisis in the church is not as bad as the society says or the Sede Vicantists say. We can follow Rome without compromising on principle in everything. And for that matter, we can put Novus Ordo faithful in this same category. That's, That's also what they think. Or you have the Contests, who say, things are as bad as they seem. They definitely are. And Vatican II is the problem. And we cannot obey Rome, at least not in everything, without violating a principle. In fact, things are so bad that it can't be the Pope doing these things. There's no Pope. There's no hierarchy. That's the second theory. Or you have the society. Things are as bad as they seem. Vatican II is the problem. We cannot obey Roman everything without violating a principle. But the Sede Contest arguments are not consistent with the Constitution of the Church. So we have to recognize the Pope, but disobey as necessary when he commands something that violates a principle. I point out that these are really the only three possible positions. And the resistance tries to make a fourth position but it doesn't really exist. They recognize the Pope and the bishops as the Pope and the bishops, but they assert you cannot have anything to do with them. Now, I don't deny at all that great prudence is needed, certainly, when dealing with the Pope and the bishops. But you cannot say that as a matter of principle, we do not have anything to do with the Pope and the bishops of the Catholic Church. That's not a Catholic position. It's an understandable one, psychologically, I understand, we live in traumatic times, but you can't say, as a matter of principle, I refuse to have anything to do with the real hierarchy of the Catholic Church. So hopefully this helps you understand where the society is situated within the range of opinions, and therefore how the society serves the Church in trying to serve souls, the souls directly in its care and the souls outside, so to speak, by being a bit of a lighthouse and a treasury, which we, we, we try to give what we have. For the rest, I refer you to Father Paliarani's recent letter about purity, which is a good reminder that we need to be striving after sanctity. We have to be letting the faith penetrate deeper and deeper into our soul, converting our soul bit by bit. If we want to keep the mind of the church, if we want to have the mind of Christ, we have to, little by little, purify our soul. Our whole soul has to be more and more like Christ if we're going to hold on to the mind. of We'll end with a prayer.